<laughs> well, I'm glad you all had a great time. I missed you. I don't, I don't really and, uh, much. I just thought it was hilarious. I'm I missed like, hanging out I with you guys. And I see you run back, and I'm like, what the world's going on? Is he going to give him like a candy bar or something? And nope. Hey, man, we're here. He misses the catch, and the football goes in the road. <laughs> the guy's like, oh. Rip. through it. No, I know. All right, all right. We're gonna we're gonna get past beyond the recent unpleasantness of, you know, I I found it I found it hysterical Philadelphia's reaction to their win. I mean, have you seen like the videos of people just like tearing the city down with their bare they're breaking into stores? We won the Super Bowl. Let's go looting and raping and pillaging. That makes so much sense. And I don't they did it in the 70s when they won the Stanley Cup. And I, when did they win with the Sixers? I can't tell you. I don't know. But they did it when they won with the Sixers. We won. We won. Anyway. We're not in anger. Yay! <laughs> I just don't I don't get it. I don't understand. Let's be jubilant and destroy things. I don't, I don't understand. But anyway. All right. So. Yeah. So. I had a very boring few weeks so i have nothing to share that's not actually true i've been really deeply enjoying my time with jesus we've been doing this uh series at the church about hearing the voice of god and so it's been this awesome uh just journey into really really being a, a person who listens to the voice of the holy spirit and so that's been really really fun for me and god's been saying some really powerful things including he's messing with my theology all over again. Yeah. Oh, I really do though. I really do. And then I have to go back to scripture and just be like, ah, okay, let's do this again. So one of the things that I heard though from the Lord is where we're supposed to go next. Cause we finished Philippians. Didn't think we ever would, but we did. Yay. Isn't that exciting? Um, so, where the where we're gonna go? Where we're gonna start? And we'll see where this takes us. But I'm we're gonna go to the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And we're gonna spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount together. And then, you know, maybe we'll finish it. I don't know. But we're looking at Matthew chapters five through seven, and we're gonna go really slowly, and we're gonna just crawl through the Sermon on the Mount and allow it to transform us, hopefully. And, uh, and that'd be really good. So does that sound good to you guys? All right, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are God who speaks. You are God who listens. And that, uh, wow, you love us so much. Lord, I thank you for all the ways that you enabled these, this group to be a witness for your glory in Seattle. I know it wasn't a missions trip per se, but that we're on mission wherever we go, reflecting the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus. And I just, I pray, Lord, that seeds were planted that will be, that will grow up to harvest in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would open it up to us, 
Pray that our eyes would be opened, that our hearts would be softened, that our ears would be unplugged, and that we would hear the the word which formed the universe, the word which uh, the which which brought light out of nothing, the word which manifested your glory in the midst of of nothing in a physical realm. Lord, I just I want to hear it this morning. I want to be shaped by it. I want to live my life in response to the song that you're singing, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, how many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Um, no, just ever. Yeah. The magician's nephew. I I try and read them once a year. Um, they're very easy to read. Like you can read one book in about an hour and a half. I think it's not hard. They're very easy reads. So <laughs> Harry Potter is much longer. Um, but uh, yes, I'm most of the way through. Uh, Order of the Phoenix right now, <laughs> but um, but uh, good movie. One of my favorite of the movies. Uh, what? Buckbeak man. Buckbeak is my favorite character. Buckbeak is your favorite character. <laughs> he's the most terrible character in the whole film. It's, he's not in Order of the Phoenix. He's not. That's why Order of the Phoenix isn't as good. He's the most terrible character in the whole franchise. Okay, whatever you say. I mean, Buckbeak is fine. I have no problem with him, but he's such a minor character <laughs> in one book. He's the, he's the MVP of that movie, though, let's be honest. You just like him because he hurt Draco Malfoy. That's the only reason you like him. I like him because he's majestic. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. So, so, at this point, in you know, in Order of the Phoenix, he's actually just locked in Sirius Black's mother's room. It's like he's that's all he's doing right now. But anyway. <laughs> he is really. I mean just that's where he's where he is. But I'm just saying. So I know you feel bad for the guy, but um, <laughs> so free buck beak. Um Forget it. You don't want to know. Okay. <laughs> Back to the Chronicles of Narnia. One of my favorite things about the magician's nephew is when the universe, when Narnia is being created, Aslan is singing it into existence. And that's, that's actually, that's not something C.S. Lewis made up. That's actually the cadence of Genesis 1 is song-like. It's repetitive. It's, it's, it, it would have been sung, not read in, in a, like a prose kind of a thing. It's very, and so it's kind of a, a picture of this, you know, whole reality. And I, and I was uh, listening to a, a preacher the, the other day that was talking about that, like the frontiers of, of quantum physics right now and how the, the actual essence of reality is these, uh, these, uh, vibrating like super strings that like and that literally the whole universe is literally a song yeah that's crazy right that that 
that the entire universe and all of existence actually is like vibration and song and like that that's that's that that that's the basis of all that exists. I think it's really fascinating. But anyway, yeah, check it out. You can find that just like Google like TED Talks on quantum <laughs> physics and you'll you'll like I love TED Talks. I really love that. It's really it is so hard for me not to try and make all my sermons into TED Talks. It's really, really hard. I don't. I don't because TED Talks are cool, but they're just informational. They're not transformational. And so that's not good enough. A TED Talk is not good enough. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're preaching the gospel, which is supposed to transform people. All right. So, and speaking of preaching, we are going to go to possibly the greatest sermon ever preached. We're going to be spending the next few weeks in the most important sermon in the history of sermons. We're going to be spending this time in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and there's that's, that's fine. We can call it that. But, but Jesus, we have reason to believe that Jesus didn't just preach this one time. That this that what what Matthew has done here and what the other gospel writers have done here is just kind of taken Jesus' different teachings and compiled them in one kind of place, put them together in one place. And not that Jesus didn't ever preach a sermon that had all of these in it. He did, but that what we have here is the most condensed, most rarefied, purified version of the things that Jesus would teach when he was teaching. Have you ever listened to someone who preaches long enough that you can, uh, you can like tell people what they're going to say next? I remember I used to be friends with a, uh, a kid whose dad was a traveling evangelist and every couple, every year or so they would, that family would come back through and and the, the evangelist, his dad, would be preaching, and the kid would be sitting next to me, we'd be hanging out, and then the kid would look at me and, like, mouth words from his dad's sermon, like, at different points, like, you know, <laughs> like, like, phrase, phrases that he knew his dad really used a lot, and, like, and he would just be like, uh. I remember one time in particular where his dad was like, you know what my favorite word is? And my, and this kid, he looks at me and he goes, like right exactly as his dad said, wow, is my favorite word, favorite word is wow. And I was just like, it totally like disillusioned me completely as I'm sitting there. I'm just like, uh, you wow. mean he's preached this before? <laughs> he preaches every single, exactly, right? But that's what we did, that's what I did not understand at the time is that evangelists get like a few messages and they just really perfect them over time. And that's what they do. And, you know, so they don't have, it's not like they prepare a specific message for each place they go, which I feel like almost is a betrayal. I think, <laughs> is that terrible? Um, but it, it just reminds me of like, you know, you know, comedians that do comedy routines. Like, do yourself a favor. If you're going to go see a comedian live, do not listen to their newest album before you go. Because you're gonna get there, and they're just gonna like be word for word the the album, and you're and you're not gonna enjoy it as much at all. It's just gonna be like I already know all these jokes, you know. I'm done. That wasn't fun, you know. That happened to me with Jim Gaffigan. I was really really let down. 
I was just like, I've heard all the – can you come up with a new joke, please? In fact, the funniest part of the whole night was we were in the Coliseum and there was a bat flying around. And it kept diving at his head. But he didn't know it. And one time it got really close, like – Boom, like, and the whole crowd goes, like, and, and he's like, what? what, what, what? And they're like, it's a bat, it's a bat. And he goes, a cat? What are you, t- I don't understand. I didn't say anything about a cat, did I? And they're like, no, no, a bat. And he's like, there's a bat? <laughs> Why is there a bat? Like, and then he went off on this whole thing and he made, he had this, like, he turned, he was really funny about the bat and like how. You know, it was really, really, that was the funniest part of the whole night because it was like totally riffing on the fact that there was a bat like attacking him in the middle of it. But anyway. One time in high school, we went on lockdown because there's a bat in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> Two periods, we were on lockdown. They couldn't get the bat. They spread rabies. Okay. Well, first the principal came on. Like, they really do. Attention, students, we're going on lockdown with a bird in the hallway. I was like, a bird? Who cares? They came on two periods later. Correction, it's a bat. Yeah. <laughs> All right. They, they spread rabies. And that's it. I, I was at a revival service one time, and and I went to walk into the sanctuary, and they're like, don't go in there. And I'm like, why? And apparently there was a bat flying around in the sanctuary at this revival service, and they had, they called this guy in who could play, like, a sound that would cause the bat to, like, come down. <laughs> And they killed the bat, but they didn't want anyone to know they killed the bat. And I was talking to one of the guys that works at this church, and he's like, he's like, yeah, we got these bats, but don't tell anybody because we're not supposed to kill them. We're supposed to like get them and release them or whatever. We didn't. We killed them. It's just like, <laughs> we get birds in our building like all the time. It's really annoying. But anyway, especially in the spring, they like they're looking for a place to to like put their nest and they work their way into our building somehow and then they're just flying back and forth during service. I'm like, pay no attention to that bird. But Jesus was there. Jesus, this is Jesus teaching absolutely like condensed down to them. And Jesus would teach these things wherever he went. He would teach these these realities wherever, wherever he went. Okay, these are the things that Jesus said. And I think we need to pay attention to them. Here is why I want to go through these with you. Okay. I think that the Sermon on the Mount in most Christianity has been sidelined. I think it's been uh, I think it's been disrespected. I think it's been kind of like Well, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, but because what most churches want to do is they want to spend time teaching what they call the gospel, which is really Paul. They want to teach a lot of Paul. Okay? And I have no problem with that. I just spent the last several months teaching <laughs> you from Paul. I have no problem with that. But I, we need to understand that Paul was teaching Christ. We need to understand that the Apostle Paul was looking at, listening to the voice of Jesus. He knew the Sermon on the Mount. He taught the Sermon on the Mount. He, when he would go to places, he would teach them who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and that he was crucified and raised from the dead. These are the things that the Apostle Paul would teach. So when we're teaching Paul, we're just teaching Christ recycled through Paul. 
Okay, and we need to understand that. And why would we teach recycled Jesus when we can have the fir- the pure essence of Jesus? Okay, and I'm fine with. T- I love teaching Paul because Paul says some things really, really well, especially some things we need to hear. But I want to go back and I want to understand the foundation upon which Paul was building, and that is Jesus himself. And I want us to spend time being transformed by this sermon. This sermon is a hunter. This sermon is an executioner. This sermon will chase you down and kill your ego. This sermon will chase you down and it will eradicate false understandings of God and false understandings of Jesus and false understandings of the gospel. That's what this sermon does extremely well. You want to know why? Because that's what Jesus wanted this sermon to do. Okay. We're going to start with chapter five, verse one. But before we do that, I want to give you our, the interpretive key for the rest of the sermon and the, and the, the lens that Jesus gave us for understanding what he was doing in this moment. Okay? And that's starting, that's verse 17 through 20. Okay? Do not think, Jesus said, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That Those verses should scare the crap out of you. In a good way. Because we love to just diminish the law and the prophets. And Jesus is like, I don't think so. No, no, no. You don't get to just throw that stuff away. But hear what Jesus is doing, okay? I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Why did he have to say that? Well, why did he have to say that? Here, He's, he's moving along through his sermon, okay? He's at a good clip, and all of a sudden it's like Jesus pauses and says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. It's because if you read the things that Jesus has been saying, they're very contrary to everything these people have ever heard before. They're like, whoa, 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 Jesus. That is nothing I've ever heard before. And Jesus is like, I know. I get it. And they were thinking, Jesus must be abolishing the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying, no, that is not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm giving you back what they were supposed to mean from the beginning. This was Jesus saying, your interpretive lens on the Old Testament has been incorrect all along. And the the culture that you grew up in and the teachers that you've had before me have all interpreted scripture incorrectly. And I am giving you the correct interpretation of the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want to give you the true way to look at the Old Testament. I want to give you the true way to look back at the law and at the prophets. 
I want you to see what was really going on there and what really truly needs to be heard when you're reading the law and the prophets. Does this make sense to you? How many times have you interpreted a scripture one way like your whole life and then somebody all of a sudden comes out with a completely different interpretation of it and you're like, excuse me? <laughs> have you ever done that? Right? You're just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. That is not what I thought that scripture meant. Okay? How many of you have done this? I've done it all the time. And a lot of times, it's while I'm reading a scripture, the Holy Spirit will be like, read it again. And I will read it again, and I'll be like, what? I thought it meant this. And he's going, yeah, well, you didn't get that from me. Right? It's like, oh, oh no, I'm sorry. And then not only, you see, here's the problem is scripture is our foundation and then we build things on it. So we get an idea that comes from scripture and then we build houses on top of those ideas, right? And when Jesus comes and says, guess what? That idea does not come from scripture. All of a sudden, the whole house that we built on top of that idea just comes crumbling down. And we're like, this whole idea I had about you, God, which has caused me to live this way and think this way and do these things and say those things. And I've taught it this way and I've said it that way. Now all of a sudden you're like, guess what? Whoops, I'm removing that. And you're like, no, my whole structure that I built is gone. And the Lord's like, yeah, I just did you a favor. Because that's what he does. He comes along and says, this is a lie, and he gives us the truth, and we're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea, and now we can start building again. Okay, and that's good. That's good. And I consider Jesus sifting my theology, which has been happening nonstop for many years. It just has. Jesus sifting of my theology has been taking place for I don't even know how long now. Because I had theology I grew up with, theology that I understood, theology that I was taught in Bible college. Okay? And then I, at some point I decided I want to be an earnest seeker and studier of the scriptures. And I began to study the scriptures intently and I began to listen to others who were studying the scriptures intently. And do you know how many of those false ideas of God have been just errat, just ripped out of my, out of me? Over and over again, Jesus comes along, knocks over my house of cards, which I call theology, and says, nope, try again. Because I'm constantly, Jesus is just constantly, he's got my, he's got my theology in a shifter, in a, in a, in, and he's just, yep, okay, here are the kernels you get to keep, and the rest of it is chaff, and now start over. And he's done that to me, I don't know how many times. And originally, it was threatening to me. Originally, it was like, how dare you? <laughs> right? Like, I didn't, I didn't know, I don't know what to do. I don't know who I am anymore. That's, that's, that's really what I thought. But the more he's done this, and he has done this to me, it has literally, truly been a constant process of rethinking for at least 15 years. Okay, And every time, I just know it, every time I feel some stability settling in, 
I just know the Lord's going to just come along and just be like, like that rock that hitting the base of the statue in Daniel 2. Like just, oh, there goes my theology again. All just, just messed all up. It's gone. Forget it. And he has consistently done this to me. Where I'm like, I think I'm getting some things figured out. And the Lord just comes on and goes, ha, 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 right? And I'm just like, no! <laughs> when am I ever going to land where I can just say, this is what I believe? And the Lord's like, I'm not, I don't know that I, he's ever going to let me do that. I think he wants me to stay in this place of, sift, of being sifted. To where I'm forced to say things like, I don't know. We'll get there in a minute. But that's what Jesus is doing to the people he is preaching to on the mountain. He's saying, everything that you've heard, it's time to unlearn it. Yoda said it. <laughs> you must unlearn what you have learned. We've got to get to that place. He's rewriting the law in the ears of his hearers. He's rewriting it the way it was originally meant to be read and heard. He is giving us an interpretive key for the Old Testament. We are unlearning the things that we had heard and understood from, my, from our culture and from our rabbis in the past, our teachers in the past. So Jesus is coming and he's pushing, he's just putting his finger on different cultural ideas, on different, you know, because uh, what we do is we take, we take the truth of God that's in the scripture and then we mix in our cultural understanding, right? And we mix in our personal opinion. And, we, and then all of a sudden it crystallizes into theology. <laughs> this is what God's really like. And the Lord comes along and says, who's that a picture of? And we're like, well, it doesn't look much like you, does it? <laughs> and the Lord's like, I love that you're seeking me, but just don't stop. Don't fall in love with any picture of me you've ever created. Fall in love with me. One of the listening exercises that, that uh, uh, we've been learning how to do, a lot of them just has, have to do with, you know, picturing. And, and there's this one, maybe we'll do this at the end of class today. <coughs> okay, but there's this one where we ask Jesus to, we, you picture a floor-length mirror, but it's fogged up. Okay. We ask Jesus to take us to the mirror and to write with his finger on the mirror the one thing that's keeping us from seeing ourselves the way that he sees us. Right? Okay. Right? The first time I did this, okay, what Jesus wrote on the mirror was the word truth. And I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> now I want you to in a moment like that when when you don't understand don't immediately say well that must not be God it's probably an invitation to ask him what does this mean help me understand it and then, and so I began to do that and it took me literally took me 3 or 4 days to understand because what Jesus did next was just wipe the mirror off and showed me myself. And he was like, with his arms around me looking, you know how you look, both two people looking in the mirror at the same time? And he's looking in the mirror with me. And what he said to me was this. He said, stop looking for truth 
that isn't me. Truth is not apart from me. I am truth. Truth is not some external substance from who I am. I am truth. Find me. Don't find truth. And I was just like, <laughs> as soon as I realized, I was like, oh, Jesus, I keep doing that. I keep building my Lego block building of Jesus. And he's like, I'm right here. We do it all the time. Jesus is like, and, and I'm so beyond your understanding, just find me. So that, And that's the kind of thing that, that Jesus was doing to the people that he's speaking to. He's saying, I'm right here. It's like what Jesus said to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, you spend your life studying the scripture thinking it will save you, but you refuse to come to me to receive life. Are you ready for this? The Bible is not the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. Now, am I saying we shouldn't study the Bible or that the Bible isn't the inspired word of God just like we believe in our 16 fundamental truths? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is the living word is the point of the written word. Does that make sense? The living word is the point of the written word. And if the written word is not taking us to the living word, it is pointless. We have become worshipers of the Bible and not worshipers of Jesus. We cannot be that kind of a people. You with me, folks? That is a dangerous statement that I just made. I might get, you know, kicked out of the Assemblies of God for it. I don't know, but <laughs> I don't think so. Because I think that what I'm saying is the essence of that understanding, because that's what we want is encounter with the living word. We're not interested in an encounter with the written word. The words on those pages are just ink. There's nothing magical about them. But the God that's being described to us in those pages is alive and powerful. And the word that the, you know where it says that the, the word of the, the word of God is a two-edged sword. It's living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces into the bone. He was not talking about the Bible. He was talking about the living word of God, the word which can create something out of nothing. The most reliable way to encounter the living word is through the written word. Absolutely, that's why we have it but it is not to be worshipped. There are, there are whole portions of the church which worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scripture. Okay, It's not who we are, and it's not. And the minute you settle for the written word, you have thrown away something unbelievably beautiful. 
Are you with me? Okay. Now let's get started. <clears throat> Do you need a minute? We're really good at proof texting, aren't we? We're really good at just finding catchy portions of scripture and just using them however the heck we want. It's so, ugh, it's gross. I really, I really get angry when, like, when, you, like, when they don't even hide it and they're like, dude, they get like, whatever verse, and then they put an A in front of it. Like, yeah. Where'd the rest of it go? <laughs> not fitting the rest of it, not fitting your sermon? My, <laughs> my, I, oh, it's so, it's really hard for me because I, if I had my way when I'm preaching, I would read like whole chapters. But people get bored, you know, yeah. and, it, and it's just like, okay, you need to read verses 19 to 47. That's what you need to read. But here's the, here's the pith of that. Here's the core. And we're just going to take that. But I want you to go home and read 19 through 47, please. Okay. And, and sometimes I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to read it. Because there are some things that can't be spoken in a tweet. You need a paragraph. There's a reason why there's 66 books. It, if, if we could get by with less, we would have. Please understand there, that, that efficiency of language is not a value. How many of you ever read like um, A Brave New World or uh, 1984? Anybody read 1984? 1984 is the perfect example of exactly what I'm talking about. Because the guy isn't the guy that like the main character in the book. He's his job is to make language more efficient, to do away with unnecessary language. And the reason why they have people doing away with unnecessary language is that language is what enables us to think. Language is the tool of thought. And words, having a new word in your brain is a new tool in your toolbox that can do things that other tools can't do. And when we reduce language to, to these tiny little pieces... Like for instance, in the book in 1984, they're like, uh, "Well, we're we're gonna we're getting rid of all uh, all negative, and we're just gonna add un to the beginning of of words instead of slow. It's unfast." Huh? Yeah. Well, we're not going to use the word slow anymore. We're going to use the word unfast because we only need one of them. We don't need the opposites. Do you see how that hamstrings up hamstrings language? Anyway, I don't remember exactly why I was going into that. But <laughs> oh, because we want to reduce everything to these like little pithy statements. But the the issue with little pithy statements is they don't encompass the whole of the thought often. There's nuance. There are there are little phrases and shades of meaning and understanding that are involved in all of the words in the sentence and we need to be we need to be aware of them 
and we need to be careful with them. Does that make sense? All right, let's go. Matthew 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, um, It's interesting that in, in Jesus' day, the teacher would sit and the students would stand. I think that's interesting. That was the normal, that was the normal pattern of teaching at the time. Students stand, teachers sit. I think that's interesting. I find it difficult to sit and teach. It's hard for me. I like to move around. I need to have some energy. Okay. Nothing theological there. I just find it interesting. Okay. Also, we need to understand, it says his disciples came to him. So this may or may not have been what he taught to the whole crowd in this particular moment. This may have been his talk to his primary folks. Um, if, if you've ever seen, uh, which I hope you haven't, but uh, the, the Life of Brian from Monty Python. Heck yeah, we there, is, Brian. there is a uh, scene where Jesus is teaching on the mountainside and and they're way back, and she's like, what did he say? Well, blessed are the cheesemakers. Well, really? I always hoped that they would get something. <laughs> Come on, we're going to miss the execution. So anyway, it's, it's a horrible film. There are some really funny moments in it, but it's a horrible film. Like, what is the deal with Brian falling into the alien spacecraft and then... <laughs> Like, that is so random. He's like, ah! And then he lands inside a UFO, and then there's this alien, like, ah! And then, like, he falls back out, and the UFO is gone. I, it's the weirdest moment. Anyway. So After you watch that, we were like, what the heck just happened in there? I think my favorite scene in that movie is when Brian's running away, and his flip-flop comes off, and they're all like, Look! It's a sign. <laughs> Everyone, take your left flip-flop off. No. He's telling us to leave it on. That we can't follow where he's gone or whatever. It's just this whole like... And, and they become two different denominations of the followers yeah. of Brian. The, the one flip-flop denomination. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I found that to be fascinating. It's like, oh, that's a, that is a pointed critique uh, of the church. <laughs> Instead of being worried about just following him, you're worried about why his flip-flop came off and that's going to separate you. Anyway, um, so, okay, we're probably going to spend almost our whole time on the first beatitude. Um, the, the beatitudes, uh, understand, are Jesus framing the argument. This is Jesus saying, let me give you a value system. Okay, let me put into place a, a good framework for your for your lens with which you're going to view Old Testament scripture that in the that the kingdom of heaven works differently than the kingdom of the earth that the kingdom of heaven works works differently than the culture in which you live and that God's culture because that's what the kingdom of heaven is God's culture a God-shaped culture okay if human culture was shaped like God it would look like this 
And that's the Beatitudes. Okay, that's that's what he's doing. He's putting out this is the preamble to the to the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, is this. And he's putting it out there and he's saying, listen to these things. And this is all about this word, blessed are. Now, I hate that word. Blessed? Blessed. I hate it. You want to know why I hate it? Because we don't know what it means. Do you know what blessed means? And don't tell me hashtag blessed, because I'm just don't even want it, okay? First of all, it's a completely stupid, oh, I'm just, we're going to move on. But anyway, blessed are, okay? Blessed are. This word blessed is a terrible translation of the original word. There's so much meaning built into this one idea that we do, are not connected with all because the guys that originally just, you know, uh, put it in here were like, we're not really sure what to do with that word. But the more I study about what this word means, it means, I mean, the, the, the literal Greek word just means happy. Okay, happy. Yeah, weird, right? <laughs> but that's not, this was, this was a freighted word. In the, are you familiar with that phrase, freighted, a word being freighted? It means it has baggage, okay? In the culture Jesus was speaking to, this word had baggage. Yeah, it just means happy, sure. But it means more than that. The, the literal picture is the divine life of God exists for those who are. One more time. Okay? The divine life of God is imparted to those who are this. Okay, that's what this word means. The life of God exists. So for this first one, the life of God exists for those who are poor in spirit. Okay. You see how that's different than just blessed. I'm blessed. I may be poor. More than just happy. Jesus is utilizing a, a, there were, Jesus was not the first person to come up with Beatitudes. There was Beatitudes all over the place in the culture that they existed in. And most of the time it was philosophical, you know, folks who were saying, well, blessed is this, blessed are that, blessed are that. So Jesus was just taking up that, that pattern of speech that the people he were listening to him would have been familiar with. And he is bringing it in and saying, now let me use that as a lever to help you understand the way that you should understand the kingdom. And the real idea was the life of God flows from this place, from this thing. Okay, so it's way beyond happy. It means happy, but it means more than that. It means that are you looking for life? And life more abundant? Hmm, where's that phrase? The enemy comes but to steal, kill, and destroy, but I give you life and life more abundant. That phrase is connected to this idea. The more abundant life is found here. And as soon as he said, blessed are, whatever it is in the Greek, it's 
Makarios. As soon as he said the word Makarios, everybody's like, oh. R. And they're ready to hear the kinds of things that they usually hear. But Jesus starts off with, a, you know, a gut punch. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit. What now? Did he say blessed are the cheesemakers? <laughs> the life of God exists for the poor in spirit? Excuse me? A baking powder? No Wayne's World fans. Excuse me? A baking powder? Wayne says it like 18 times. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> He's... <laughs> Forget it. Excuse me? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is beginning at the beginning. It's a good place to begin, right? He's beginning at the beginning, and what he is saying to them is, let's get one thing straight. You only... You're only blessed. The life of God begins with you realizing you have nothing. The life of God begins with you coming to terms with your own spiritual poverty. You bring nothing to the table. You know nothing. You have nothing to bring to the table. You are completely wrong in the way you look at the world. Every idea that exists in your head right now is wrong. Yay! Blessed are you. <laughs> what? The life of God exists for you because you know nothing. <laughs> Excuse me, Jesus. <laughs> what is that? What? These people are a people who are surrounded by experts, just like we are now. They're surrounded by people who know what they're talking about, who have authority. And they all aspire to be like the experts, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. They're all like, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that guy. And Jesus is like, blessed are you when you're not like that guy. Blessed are you when you don't have it all figured out. Blessed are you when you don't understand. Blessed are you when you start at the beginning. Blessed are you when you, when you take your head, which is full of bad ideas, and just dump them all out. Blessed are you. Some of the people in the crowd are probably like, oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> you know? Oh, you. <laughs> but, 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 and, and this is very characteristic of Jesus teaching over and over again. Jesus' teaching always made the people who knew nothing really happy. And always made the people who thought they knew everything really mad. Because if you're a Pharisee and you spent your entire life studying the scripture and Jesus comes along and says, every idea you have in your head is false. That would not, you wouldn't be happy about that. I spent a hundred thousand dollars on that degree. Jesus is like, it's crap. You don't need it. Just <laughs> here, bring me your diploma. I'm going to just rip it to shreds because it's not important. This isn't helping you. The life of God doesn't exist here. The life of God doesn't exist in this. Life of God exists in poverty. Specifically poverty of spirit. 
It exists when you realize you bring nothing to the table, that you're not okay, that you're broken, that you don't see the world correctly. We have a, we have a word for this attitude, okay? It's called repentance. Repentance. The Greek word we, we translate as repentance literally means rethink everything. You're walking one way, you've made a lot of progress going that direction. Make a 180 degree turn and start walking the other direction. That's repentance. And Jesus is saying, let's get, let's start where we need to start. Let's start with repentance. Let's start by emptying our head of all of the things we've accumulated, of all the ideas that we had. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you good ideas, good thoughts, true teaching, but I can't fill a cup that's already full. Let's begin by emptying ourselves. I want to demonstrate to you how we are poor in spirit, even if we don't realize it. Number one, our lives are a vapor here one minute and gone the next. That's the teaching of scripture from several different places. In other words, in the, in the scope of history, you're not a big deal. Isn't that refreshing? <laughs> I'm going to change the world. No, you probably aren't, but I'm really grateful that you're part of this. I know I just hurt a few people's feelings right there. That's okay. I, you know, it's okay. Your life is a vapor. Anything you do have was given to you by God in the first place. Can you disagree with that statement? There's a whole lot of people. There's an entire political party which hates that idea. Okay? Because there is a narrative in this country that if you just work hard, if you just leverage your own strength, capability, and and, and intelligence, that you can make something of yourself. And I'm saying to you, bullcrap. No. No. The people that have, quote-unquote, made something of themselves, I'm not saying they didn't cooperate in the process. Sure, they cooperated in the process. But they started with something that they did not earn. They worked using things that they did not earn or create. The hands, the brain, the heart that you have, the ideas that you have, you did not give them to yourself. And the relationships that you exist within did not come from you. Okay? You are not the product of your own effort. We need to understand that. We need to get over ourselves and realize that you are, you have been given everything that you have. Now, yes, you can destroy everything 
that you've been given. You can absolutely do that. So the, the, the highest level of credit I can give you is you didn't screw it up. Congratulations. Okay. That's a big deal. And we need to get a hold of that. We need to understand. We need to come to grips with the term, with the idea that I, everything that I have was given to me by God. Anything that you do or make, the ability to do that thing came from God. We are innate. And on top of that, because we are innately flawed and broken, everything you do or create is also deeply flawed and broken itself. So whatever you have accomplished is just as broken as you. There are deeply, deeply broken, flawed things about anything that you have done well. Right? Doesn't this feel good? This is just a feel-good kind of day. I don't remember exactly how I said it. Everything you've done really well is also deeply broken and flawed. It's just as deeply broken and flawed as you are because it originates with you. And I want you to start thinking about that when it comes to ministry. I know, I know. I'm just getting, I'm just, we're going one, even deeper. Here's the truth. And we need to come to grips with this because you're going to fail. <laughs> if something good comes from ministry that you are doing, it was not you that did it. It was God that did it through you and in cooperation with you. Absolutely. I'm not discounting the fact that you said yes to him. That is incredibly important. But the, the benefit that people derive from your ministry is God putting himself in, broken, in a broken vessel. It's all that it is. It's all it's ever been. It's all it will ever be. Now that is both kind of like... That is, that, that's incredibly humbling news, okay? Because it means, oh, I guess I can't really take credit for anything that I did. But it also will help you because you are going to fail. I'm not saying every time, I'm not saying all the time, I'm not even saying most of the time, but there are times when you're going to fail. And when people you're ministering to are going to just fly out off the deep, and just go off into hell and, and you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And they're just going to run as far as they can from God. And you're going to be going, but I did my best. And the Lord's going, I, I, your best isn't enough. And it's never been enough. And it will never be enough. You're not responsible for the outcome of the things that you cooperate with God in. Good or bad. We should do the best that we can do. We should, we should say yes to, the, to the, the greatest depth that we can agree and cooperate with God. We should do so. But we also need to understand that what happens after that is not yours. 
It's not yours to keep and it's not yours to lose. Does that make sense? All right, everybody stand up. Come on, let's go. Just telling you, we need to get some blood flowing. <laughs> Reach up to the sky. You know we don't get away from stretching. It's good for you. It helps. Oh, it is her son. Indeed. All right. Stretch. Get yourself awakened a little bit. I know, I know, I'm being mean. I promise there's good news at the end of this. You know, I'll tell you this. When, whenever my wife gets warm, that's also when she starts falling asleep. Like we'll sit down and watch, we'll sit down and watch a show together and she'll start out just like, I'm freezing. And then when she actually gets warm, that's why I, it's like, that's it. I literally do the same thing. I went to my parents' house on Sunday for church and oh some laundry, and then there's a painted blanket on the couch, and I was like, oh, what's going on here? Yeah, don't next thing, I know she did. Next thing I know, it was like 5.30, Monty's wings are ready, Super Bowl's about to come on. Like, oh, what a way to wake up. It was the best way to wake up. You wake up. I woke up and I smelled wings. I smelled Frank's and butter sauce. I really like that song. Don't you just love that movie? I love that whole movie. Huh? The the uh, oh yeah, was it awesome? It was so good, so funny. Jumanji, so good. It was really good. They did such a great job. Okay. All right, let's move back. All right, because we're we're gonna get to why we should be happy about this in a minute. All right, but let's let's keep going. Because I want you to get down to the bottom. I want you to get to where you're like, I'm, I'm nothing. That's what I want. I want that for you. Because Jesus says those are the people that have received the life of God. Those are the people that are happy. These are the, the people that understand they know nothing. That's the, these are the people. Okay, and, and we're going to get there in a minute. Okay? You have no ability to be righteous. <laughs> Yay! That's exciting. You have no ability to be truly and deeply good because within your own attempt to be good, there are motives which are selfish and broken. Oh, man. The more deeply you realize this, the better off you're going to be. That in everything you are attempting to accomplish for good, there are some deeply broken selfish motives stirred in there somewhere. It might only be 5% of why you're doing what you're doing, but it might be 95%. And you need to realize that even in, on your best moment, in your best, on your best day, you're not, you're, you, yeah, you're still trash. It's true. It's true. And we have to live at that place 100% of the time. As soon as we start getting self-congratulatory, you have forgotten. You have forgotten. As soon as you start building any worth on anything you've accomplished, you have forgotten. 
Because, and I'm telling you right now, God loves you too much to allow you to keep your worth built on the things that you've done. So he will come along and dismantle the things that you've done just to reorient your worth on him and not on you. Because God loves you more than the things he's called you to do. Somebody tattoo that on their soul. I'm telling you right now. God loves you more than the things he's called you to do. Do not be defined by your calling, please. God loves you, not what you can do for him. God loves you, not what he's called you to do. God loves you and not all of the, the busy work that, he want, that he's put in your path. God died, Jesus died for you. He's after you. He's building relationship with you. And when everything you've ever done becomes dust, the things that will stand are the places you chose connection with him and with the people around you. Because that's what lasts. Please hear me. Gosh, if I can get this group to really believe this, you guys will be so healthy and you will have beautiful ministries that will teach people to do the same, to build their worth on their relationship with Jesus and not on all the things, all of the things that are written down under their name and their obituary. You know what I want my obituary to say? He was a lover of Jesus and of everyone he ran it, he came in contact with. That's all I want my obituary to say. Because that's all that really, truly matters at the end. And when we come before the throne of God, he's not going to say, so how big was the ministry you built? How many views did you get on Facebook? No. Did you share that post What he's going to say is, did you truly and deeply love me? And did you truly and deeply love the people that I put in your world? Love motivates us to do and accomplish things, and it should. I'm not saying we shouldn't do things for God. I'm saying that the point of doing things for God is manifestation of the love we have for him, not the other way around. The value is love. Connectedness. We had a, a board meeting, ministry meeting at the church a couple weeks ago. And I said this to my team because we were talking about holding people accountable for the things they said they were going to do. And we were talking about leadership. And I said, please hear this. The people that you are asking to be involved in ministry are more important than your ministry. The minute we forget that, we idolize ministry. And we totally destroy the whole point of what we're trying to do. 
We got to get that through our heads. So happy are those. The life of God is evident and available to those who realize they have nothing, that God owes them nothing, and that they live in full and constant knowledge of their spiritual, tangible, and moral bankruptcy. The word for that state is repentance. And it's the state in which we need to live. The constant, endless, ruthless rethinking of everything all the time to conform to the image of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is clearing the table. Don't think you can add to what I'm saying. To, don't think you can add what I'm saying to your store of spiritual knowledge. That's what Jesus is saying. This is not just another book to add to your bookshelf. I want you to take all the books off and put my book there, and that's it. In fact, I don't want you to have any books. I just want you to have me. No books, just me. That's it. Don't add this to your store of spiritual knowledge. Delete the rest of your spiritual knowledge, and this is it. Joy will be found in the abandonment of all the stuff that you currently have in your hands. Why? Why are we happy if we live in this state? I'll tell you why. Jesus tells us why. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why they're happy. Not because they're bankrupt. Bankrupt. Nobody wants to stay in a bankrupt state. That's not what's at the point. The point is to live in this place. I have nothing and never and no. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. All of it. The whole kingdom. All of heaven belongs to you. All of God's culture belongs to you. This is the doorway in to the things of God. Where we go from building to receiving. Where we go from from writing our own resumes to running after being transformed into the image of the second person of the Trinity, or we go from what can I brag about? How can I build my own self-worth to just saying Jesus is the worthy one? I'm not interested in anything else. We are get the, the, the journey of the gospel. I'm really looking, I've been, I've been working on this sentence for a few weeks. And I'm not going to get it right right now, but, but, and it's going to be messy. But the journey of the gospel is the journey out of self and into God and community. That's the journey of the gospel. The journey of the gospel is journey out of self and into gospel and community, into God and community. That's the journey called the gospel. Okay. I want you to put heaven and hell on, on two ends of a spectrum. And I want you to think about this. Because this is the reality of heaven and hell. And this is what we've got to understand about why people end up in hell and why people end up in heaven. Okay? Hell is an eternal uh, search for self-aggrandizement, self uh, uh, centeredness, 
an understanding of who you are and a deeper and deeper understanding of, of uh, you know, and finding, finding worth and joy and, and delight in your own existence. That's hell. Okay? I want you to look at the best, the most beautiful picture of how hell works is addiction. How does addiction begin? Anybody? How does addiction begin? Are you awake? How does addiction begin? Tell me. Yeah. I want to feel good. And I don't want to feel bad. Right? So you indulge in something. Doesn't matter what it is. Could be a substance. Could be an activity. Because people get addicted to screens. They get addicted to gambling. They get addicted to... Oh, yeah. Screen addiction is a very real thing. Oh. Like... Computer screens, phone screens. My, my head went to where, like, a dude just had a bunch of TVs in his head. And he goes, look at all my screens. <laughs> I need <some> screens. <laughs> <laughs> it's real. It's a real thing. All right? Yes, I got you. Yes. All right? Engaging in an activity to walk away from pain and into and into pleasure. There's no, and that is that is... That is something we all understand. We don't like feeling bad and we like feeling good. But when feeling good becomes an end in itself, we have made it a God. Addiction works like this. When I did that, I felt good. So now I'm going to do it again. The problem is the second time you do something, it's never as good as the first time you did it. And the third time is a little less satisfying and a little less and a little less and a little less and a little less. But what happens is people continue to pursue pleasure in that thing for its own purpose until they arrive at the place where they're no longer seeking to feel good through a thing, but just to feel normal through a thing. Have you ever seen somebody that is addicted to something that hasn't had that thing for a while? I had a conversation with a young lady recently who is a smoker. I wasn't even thinking about it. Our conversation went on for more than an hour. And then she was like, look, I have got to go and and smoke because I just feel so gross right now. I felt so sick. And I'm just like, don't you smoke to feel good? <laughs> but that's not where she is anymore. It's not where anybody is at that point anymore. It's just they have to have it to feel normal. And then it continues to progress. The satisfaction you gain in that thing continues to shrink. And your need for that thing continues to grow. And you need more and more and more of that thing. Now imagine that journey going on forever. That's the essence of hell. Do you understand? Because the only thing which truly satisfies the human spirit is 
a connection, a relationship with God. And anything else we choose, anything else we would go to to satisfy the needs of what of our souls is going to lead us to complete and utter eternal destruction. Not because how dare you smoke that cigarette, that's evil. It's you're going to, after death, you will continue to pursue the same kind of thing that you've pursued your entire life and you will continue to find less and less satisfaction in it. And forever you will be in that place. And you can put whatever you want in the category of the thing I'm addicted to because it doesn't matter. If it's another person, if it's another thing, it doesn't matter what it is. It's money, power, sex, doesn't matter what it is. You put something else in that category of the thing I'm addicted to. It's going to lead you. You're going to stay chasing meaning, worth, purpose, whatever in that thing that is not God and it will lead you out. And do you see how that is an inward spiral into oneself forever and ever? Does that make sense? Hell is an eternal pursuit of self. And when you're pursuing self, that's all you're going to find. And self without God is endless agony and destruction. Because you were not meant to exist outside of the relationship of God and you. But when the law and the prophets all are bound up into these two things, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, heaven is the opposite direction. It's an endless pursuit of God and other. Not an endless pursuit of me, but an endless pursuit of God and other. So that I am broadened and stretched and, 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 and given more and more license to deeply, fully enjoy my relationship with God and with the, and with the others that are in my life. And I will endlessly, so that heaven is a beautiful community. Heaven is a city. Heaven is a city. And hell, you are eternally by yourself. I know people that have said, I hope I go to hell because all my friends are there. They are, but you're not going to see them. You will be alone. Does this make sense? The gospel is the journey. It's a journey out of ourselves and into community with God and others. That's the gospel. Let's continue. Jesus says, when you are at the place where you realize that you're nothing on your own, that's when you need others to be a part of where you are and who you are. Most importantly, me. When your cup is empty, I can start to fill it. When your slate is blank, I can start to write on it. This is where, it's, where it starts, and that's why you're happy. Because now you can receive good things. The kingdom of God belongs to those who know the truth about themselves that they have nothing because God would give us everything. Luke 18, 16, Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Have you ever known a kid that was embarrassed about asking for a thing? 
Why are we embarrassed to ask for things? Exactly. I don't want you to think that I need you. And Jesus is like, that's disgusting. Get rid of it. That's a big deal. Luke 12, 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you hear what he is saying? Listen to what God says. There's two places I live. I live in two places, God says. This is where you'll find me. One, you will find me in a high and holy place. I am above, I am transcendent, I am glorious. But that is not the only place you'll find me. You'll also find me with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. And I am there to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite one. You're not going to find me with the people that have everything figured out. You're not going to find me with the people that have all they need and need nothing. I am where people need me, and I am where and I am high above all things. That's where God lives. And guess what? I can't. I haven't been able to find the ladder that takes me up to the high and holy place. So I'm just going to go to the needy place, and I know I'm going to meet God there because this is where He says He lives. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's only in this place of spiritual poverty that we can begin to receive from God. Only a student who knows nothing can learn everything. Matthew 19, 23 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Do you know what that means? Anybody familiar with that particular parable? What does that mean? Does Jesus mean if you have money, you can't get saved? What does it mean? Kind of. He may have said this after that. But what does he mean? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's basically saying that like because you have money, you're more likely that you can provide for yourself. So like it's harder to... Look at God because you already think, well, okay, so I have this money, I can give myself everything I need. But when you're needy, when you're technically fully dependent on God providing for you, yeah. so you're looking to Him to give you everything. Absolutely. The eye of the needle, Jesus is referring to, by the way, is not the little hole at the end of a needle. There were walls around cities at this time. Okay? And at night, the gate of the city would be closed. That was for good reason. They didn't want people to come in that shouldn't be coming in. And you don't want to have guards in front, you know, whatever. Okay. But they would have a little door next to the gate that could be accessed. They called the door the eye of the needle. In order for a camel to get through the eye of the needle, you would have to take everything the camel is carrying off of its back and take just the camel through. And then bring the other stuff through one thing at a time. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, declutter, take everything off of you, and just come in, just you. The kingdom of heaven cannot be earned, it can only be given. The kingdom of heaven cannot be earned, it can only be given. kingdom of heaven cannot be earned. So stop trying. The kingdom of heaven can only be received by grace as a gift from God. Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if you want to receive, if you want to be a receiver of Jesus' righteousness, you have to do it through the grace of God. You don't, you can't earn it. You can't achieve some level of whatever. It's given. It's not earned. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You can't receive something by a little bit of grace and a little bit of work. Oh, man. Oh, man, the church so tries to do this. We so try to do this, don't we? We so try and be like, Jesus, I'm so grateful for your grace, but now I'm going to go work hard for it. Isn't that what every pastor in, like, America does? You need the grace of God. Now get out there and work for it. I feel like people come to church, they get saved by grace, and then the rest of their Christian life is about work. Okay, Jesus cleaned you up once, but he is not going to do it again, so you keep your nose clean. How many of you heard a sermon like this? Jesus gave everything for you, so you should be giving everything for him. I just offended a couple of people in this room. Are you saying I shouldn't give everything for Jesus? I'm saying... <laughs> No, you don't have anything to give. <laughs> okay. Jesus did give everything to you. Receive it all. That's your work. What does it say in Hebrews? I want you to strive to enter his rest. Excuse me? I want you to strive to enter his rest. In other words, the only striving that should be involved is that you're striving to not strive. <laughs> it is not easy to do either. I'll tell you right now, it is not easy to do. I want you to try to lay on the floor and not move anything. It is not easy to do. It requires will. Like, <laughs> so I'm saying, once you're on the floor, I want you to make every attempt to not move. That is that is hard. What? I'm just saying that's really hard. Even you're allowed. Even oh, you're allowed to breathe, but don't do anything else. That is very difficult to do. I'm just telling you, it is. 
That's why we have to have people to teach us how to do it. You have to have somebody like talk you through it. How many how, how many people in this world take like meditation classes? Okay. Yoga meditation. All meditation is is learning how to not think anything. That's all meditation is. Okay? It is not easy for us to do. It is really hard to do. Yeah, you say that now, but actually try it. Actually try to completely blank your mind and not not think about anything at all. It is very difficult to do. It takes an enormous amount of practice and will. It really does. And honestly, I don't know that it's even biblical to do that. So I'm just I'm not saying you should. The Bible's word, you know the Bible has the word meditate, okay? Biblical meditation is to actively, mentally pursue an idea or concept. It's to chew, to mutter, to, to, to marinate in an idea and let that idea just wash over you until you are completely permeated by it. That's biblical meditation, okay? It is not clear your mind. Now reach out. I feel something. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, it's from it's from Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's the force. That's the force. <laughs> okay. Check this out. <laughs> if you attempt to earn grace, you lose it. Have you ever seen the movie Stranger Than Fiction? One of my all-time favorite films. You need to see it. It's Will Ferrell. But it's not any. It's not like any other Will Ferrell movie you've ever seen. Yes. It really. It's not. Yes. That's a great movie. It's so great on so many levels. Stranger Than Fiction. Stranger Than Fiction. One of the greatest movies ever made. I'm dead serious. I adore that film. And there's this scene where he's a tax man, okay, and he's auditing this woman who is running a bakery. And she has made his day a living hell because she took all of her well-filed, like, texts, you know, all of her receipts, all of her stuff out of her, out of her beautiful filing system. And has just dumped them all in one box because she's ticked at him for auditing her. So she has done everything she could possibly do to make it nearly impossible for him to audit her. And then he has to sit in this room and try and go through all this stuff. And then when he comes downstairs... She feels bad for him, so she has made him some chocolate chip cookies. Okay? She's a baker. That's what she does. She's made him some chocolate chip cookies, and they're sitting there talking, and he's, he's like – she realizes he's never had a chocolate chip cookie before, which is like, oh, my gosh. How have you lived? Right? And then he tries it, and he's like, oh, my God. This is the best thing ever. How much are they? And she's like, they're not – and it's just a gift. He's like, I'm not allowed to receive gifts from the people I'm auditing. And she's like, please, I just made them. You can have it. It doesn't matter. And he's like, no, I need to pay for them. And she's like, no. And she takes his cookies away. He's like, these are a gift. I would, you know, I, I was just trying to make your day better. You don't get to buy them for me. I'm sorry. If somebody tried to buy the gift you tried to give them, it's an insult. Is it not? It is. Because you bought it for them. Would that make you feel bad? I bought this for you and now you want to pay me for it? No, I can't accept a gift, but let me pay you for it. No, I bought this for you. Exactly. What is that? Uh, Jillian Smith. 
Okay, exactly. And then you're trying to pay him for it. It's the same thing with grace. Jesus is like, I'm giving this to you. Don't try and buy it. But there's more. There's more. What would you buy it with? What would you buy it with? Whatever. It's like, it's like I want to buy it from you. So you take a crap in your hand and hand it to Jesus. And he's like, I don't want that. Ah! Whatever you would try and buy it with is going to be worthless anyway. So stop. It's grace. Receive it. Don't try and buy it. Everything you do to try and earn it just ruins it, so just quit. But I really want to be worthy of it. No, you don't. You can't. Just quit. There's an old gospel song called Give Up. <laughs> Great song. Yes. Give up and let Jesus Take oh, it's a great song. It's a great song. That was the music of my upbringing. It was the Gaithers, and I adore it. I never listened to it, but you know. Great Galatians five four. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Soon as you try and buy grace, it ceases to be grace, and you you've lost it. You have fallen from grace. What? If the church figured this out, everything would change. Let me say this to you. The people in this room, and I know that this is a reality for some of you, you have been fighting tooth and nail against one kind of sin that has been a part of your life for a very long time. And you're saying, I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want to have that anymore. I quit and receive the grace of God to be free from that sin. Your fight is making it worse. That is a hard word to receive. Does that mean just go ahead, just do it, everyone? Woo! That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the thing that conquers sin is grace, not work. And Jesus has already provided your freedom from that pattern of behavior. He has freedom for you as a gift. It's yours. Breathe it in like the air because it's all around you. When we come to Christ, we have to repent of our sins, but we also have to repent of our self-righteousness. 
Either we're going to be wearing our own righteousness or we're going to be wearing Christ's righteousness. We can't have it both ways. Either you embrace spiritual poverty or you will not receive the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Isn't this backward? That's what I'm trying to help you see. That's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It pursues our broken, backward thought process and confronts it with something alien and different and weird. And like, that is, does not make sense to me. And Jesus is going, I know, and that's why you need to hear it. The journey I want you on is the journey to finding this beautiful and the way you think now, ugly. And I want you all to realize this is not about... <laughs> we are so good at building morality codes. <laughs> We're so good at, at building a... a uh, do and don't lists and that has never been what it's about it's about a correct understanding of how the universe actually works a correct understanding of how the human soul actually works a correct understanding of who god actually is and when we finally understand it not only will we be happy but we will have the life of god inside of us we will be like jesus because we will see the world the way that he does and we will react to the world the way he reacts because we've taken on the mind of christ how many verses are there that talk to us about that we will have ceased to think like ourselves and we will start thinking like Jesus and it will be glorious and beautiful. It will be effortless and free. You won't have to say, I want to do that, but I can't. You won't want to do those things anymore. That's what the gospel is supposed to do. The gospel is supposed to change what you want. And when that happens, it will change what you do because you won't want to do those other things anymore at all. It won't be one of these, I want to do, but I don't want to do it. No, you just will want to do. You'll want to be like Jesus. You'll just, you'll, you'll react. Your knee jerk becomes the same as Jesus' knee jerk. That truly when you cut, you bleed grace. That that's really what happens. And that's where we're headed. And that's what Jesus wants. And the, the book of Romans says, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Do you think that that's skin deep? That's what we're after. And that's where God's taking us. That we will think like Jesus, feel like Jesus, 
react like Jesus, believe like Jesus. Do you think anything's going to be impossible for a people who exist that way? I'm telling you, miracles will be the most natural thing in the world because they were for Jesus. They will be for us. And the kingdom of heaven will be made manifest on the earth through your life. Because people will encounter you and instantly know there's something very different about this person. And you won't have to know the four spiritual laws or any of these other things, ways to trick people into believing the gospel. You'll just be the gospel in front of them. And every word that you say and every thought and every action that you take is going to be a blatant display of the nature of Jesus. And they're going to be both offended and hopeful at the same time. Does this sound good to you? It sounds good to me. This is what I want. It's what I'm after. So Jesus, keep sifting our theology. Keep crumbling our sandcastles. I want every aspect of me to be like you. So I'm going to breathe you in and I'm going to stay with you and I'm going to walk with you because the more time I spend with you, the more like you I become. I want to think about things the way you think about them. I want the natural reaction of my soul and my mind and even my body to be just like yours. I don't want any thought in my head that doesn't echo and harmonize with the thoughts of yours. And I pray that it becomes such instinct for me that anything that doesn't look or sound like you instantly feels wrong and broken. And whatever that does to my theology, whatever that does to my, oh man, I don't care about any of that. I'm not after truth. I'm after you. I want to be the body of Christ in the world. The habitation of the Holy Spirit. And I want that for my friends in this room. I love this idea. It's your idea. So I come to the door. I come to the beginning. I empty myself of all my old ideas. And I say, Jesus, I know nothing. Teach me from the ground up. All my perspectives are wrong. Everything I bring to the table is worthless. I give it all up. And I pick up my cross. 
Let that which is me now die so that I can find my life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.